our sermon text for today is from Matthew chapter 15, the gospel according to Matthew. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 28, which contains two uh, paragraphs, two stories. The first is a discussion that Jesus has with the Pharisees, a debate over the traditions of the elders about washing your hands before you eat. And the second is the story of a Gentile woman who came to Jesus uh, and requested that her daughter be healed from a demon that was oppressing her. We're going to see how these two uh, stories relate to one another. If you would, please rise and give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord, as we come now to hear your word, as we come to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that you would fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may humbly receive what you have to say to us today from the scriptures. Open our eyes that with the eyes of faith we may see Jesus, our wonderful Savior, in all of his divine beauty and glory. Subdue our wills that we may follow him and that we may serve him and love him. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So in this passage, in verses 1 through 20, we have Jesus' dispute with the Pharisees over the tradition of hand-washing. And then in verses 21 through 28, we have the story of a Gentile or Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus requesting that he would heal her daughter and cast out the demon that is severely tormenting her. And I want to tie these two together and show you the contrast between the Pharisees and this woman. The Pharisees are committed to the traditions of the elders and to this very external view of righteousness. And so they reject Jesus. They don't see Jesus as someone that they need. They don't see him as a savior. Whereas this woman, the Canaanite woman, she's unclean. She's a Gentile. She's everything the Pharisees rejected. And yet she acknowledges her need and she comes to Jesus for cleansing and for salvation and for grace. And she is the one who is saved. Let's begin by looking at the dispute that Jesus had with the Pharisees over this tradition. The Pharisees taught that the level of holiness that was required of the priests in the Old Testament had to be observed by all the people. And so they were fanatics for holiness. Of course, holiness is sort of in quote marks, right? Because it doesn't really refer to holiness of heart. They're not really fanatics for godliness. They're fanatics for holiness in the external sense of avoiding all the things that would defile you and make you ritually unclean according to the Mosaic law. For example, if you touched a dead body or even a grave, you would be impure for the rest of the day and you had to go and wash yourself. The Pharisees followed the traditions of the rabbis that defined what was clean and unclean. And these traditions, they claim, went all the way back to Moses himself as an oral tradition that was passed on from rabbi to rabbi. But one of the oral traditions that was passed on, they claimed was from Moses himself, was the necessity of washing one's hands before eating a meal. Now this had nothing to do with our modern day idea of, hey kids, go wash your hands before dinner. It had nothing to do with that. It wasn't about getting the germs off so that you wouldn't get sick. It was about purity. It was about following the purity laws that the priests had to follow in the Old Testament in order to go into the temple. Now, the disciples of Jesus don't follow this tradition. They don't wash their hands before they eat. And this, you have to think about this, right? This would have been what we would call this today. We would call this uh, civil disobedience, right? Because everyone knew that this was the law that you had to follow, and it was strictly enforced by the Pharisees. You kind of have to imagine them as being a little bit like the Taliban, right? They kind of go around and make sure everybody's doing everything right. And so they're out there checking on everybody, making sure they're following these laws. And yet the disciples of Jesus, in an act of defiance, out in the open, would, un would intentionally eat their food with unwashed hands. That is, un impure, un uh, unwashed, defiled, ritually defiled hands in order to flout the traditions of the elders. And my assumption would be that Jesus himself was the one that probably encouraged them to do this, right? Where would they get this idea from? As the disciples of Jesus, they were following his own teaching that the tradition of the elders is not 
authoritative. And so, in an act of civil disobedience, they did this, and guess what? As expected, the leadership of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes, they heard about this, and they decided to confront Jesus over it. You have to think about this also as sort of like, uh, you know, the leadership of Israel is focused primarily in Jerusalem, right? That's where all the, the priests are. That's where the, that's the headquarters. That's like denominational headquarters, if you will. And so word had gotten back all the way to Jerusalem that Jesus and his disciples weren't following this tradition. And so we're told there in verse 1, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. So they're coming from denominational headquarters with a mission to confront them and to tell them that they need to get in line. The highest officials of the denomination have heard what they're doing, and they're not at all pleased. And notice what they say in verse 2. Their question is very confrontational. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Notice how they frame the question right from the outset. They don't frame it as uh, a legitimate debate over interpretation of the scriptures. Well, you have this interpretation, we have that interpretation. No, they, they frame it as breaking the tradition of the elders. They use this word breaking, which normally you think that's only reserved for breaking the law of God, right? But somehow they've equated their tradition with the law of God, and so to break the tradition is the same thing as breaking the law of God. And so they come to Jesus with this judgmental attitude, demanding to know, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And Jesus' response, which will take us from verses 3 all the way down to verse 20, is broken up into two major sections because Jesus wants to deal with two spiritual issues that he sees with the Pharisees. And you, at first you might think that Jesus is somewhat changing the subject because beginning in verse 3, he turns the tables on them and says, but why do you guys break the commandments of God? And then he starts talking about this other commandment, which has to do with honoring your father and your mother. He continues that discussion all the way down to verse 9. Then in verse 10, when he turns to the original topic at hand about what is purity and impurity, he says to the crowds that it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but what comes out of your mouth. But this whole discussion is still on the topic, and you know that because when you get to the very end in verse 20, he says what? To eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. So he's returning all the way back to the original question that was stated in verse 2 when the Pharisees came and challenged him. So this whole conversation here is about this issue. Jesus sees the Pharisees as having two main spiritual problems. The first is that they are hypocrites, and the second is that they are externalists. That is, if you look at everything, as just being outward. They're not looking at the heart. The first is that they're hypocrites. So look in verses 3 through 7. He turns the tables on them. He says, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. So that's the key critique here. He's saying they're hypocrites because they are elevating their tradition to such a high level that they're even willing to make void the word of God. Well did Isaiah the, 
the prophet prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They claim to speak for God, right? These Pharisees. They claim to be the ones that are upholding God's word and God's will. They claim to be concerned about the law of Moses that God gave to Israel. But in reality, they're not. In reality, they break the law for the sake of their tradition. And so Jesus points out that, here's a very good example. He points out that the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother, and yet they have a way of getting around that. Now you have to understand that in this time, there was no such thing as social security. So when your elderly parents are in retirement and they're getting on in years, uh, you as a, an adult child have the responsibility to take care of your parents in their old age. There's no nursing home you can send them to. There's no Medicare. You have to take care of them. And the fifth commandment was understood as not only saying that little kids need to obey their mommy and daddy, but as adults, even when you're in your 60s, you need to take care of your parents in their old age. And this was a huge financial burden. And so the Pharisees came up with a clever way of getting around it. They said that all you had to do is to say, Korban. This is the Hebrew word that means it's a gift that's given to God. So you could point to your, your property and say, okay, this house and this property is Korban. It's given to God. And as soon as you say that, then that's a vow. And that vow is binding. And what that means is that now your property is dedicated to God and it's such a binding vow you could never be released from it. In fact, in the Talmud, the Talmud is sort of a, a later tradition, but it, it contains traditions from this time period of the time of Jesus. There's a whole section of it that deals specifically with vows and when can they be released and when, when are they binding and there's this whole section dealing with vows of Korban when you dedicate something to God. And so they found this way then to just say the word. All you have to do is just say the word. And as soon as you say the word korban, then the property is off limits to the parents and they cannot re get any benefit from it. That means they can't even come over to your house because if they come over to your house and step on the property, then they're getting benefit from it. But it's been given to God as a sacred obligation, as a vow that you're promising to give it to God. Now the weird part about this is you're thinking in your mind, well then, how does this work? Because is the son still allowed to just live in the house and enjoy the property, even though it's been given to God? And the answer was yes, according to the rabbis, because you promised to give it to God. And so during the whole time when your parents are still alive, you're able to live there and you're able to enjoy all the benefits of it, but your parents can't. And so the son is able to get off the hook. He's able to get around the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, that's the word korban, given to God, then he need not honor his father. And so, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Look at this outrageous legalistic maneuvering that the Pharisees are engaging in here. And they're doing so not only to uphold their tradition, but even worse, to get around having to fulfill the commandments of God, the explicit commandments of God. It's something to think about here before we continue on, just sort of apply it to us. You know, tradition is something that often gets started in an innocent way, right? Because the Bible doesn't contain 
detailed prescriptions over every detail of how things should be done. I mean, just look around you right now. It doesn't say that you should have a church building with pews and that you should have a pulpit with a microphone. It doesn't give directions over how worship should be done in that detail. It gives us general principles about preaching the Word of God and so on and singing songs and worship and prayer and so on, but it doesn't give us details. And so we have to use what are called the circumstances of worship to sort of fill in those details so that we can worship God. But what happens is that these circumstances that are uh, using just, you know, our God-given reason to figure out a way to fulfill the commandments of God, these circumstances sometimes take on a life of their own. Even though they don't have any binding authority in themselves, they can take on a life of their own. And pretty soon, these man-made traditions and circumstances of worship slowly evolve from being merely a supplement to the Word of God to being a substitute that replaces the Word of God. And that, of course, is how a lot of the traditions that you see in the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox tradition, that's how they developed. It even happens in Protestant churches. And over time, these traditions become on the same level as the Word of God, the same par of the Word of God, and even higher than the Word of God. And what's even worse is that when those in power become sticklers for these traditions, and they enforce these traditions with rigid authority, they often will allow themselves to even go against the clear teaching of Scripture without batting an eye, all because of their idolatry over these man-made traditions. And that's what makes the charge of hypocrisy stick. And that's what was going on here with Jesus in his, contra his controversy with the Pharisees. They are hypocrites. They're going around with such righteous indignation saying, Aha! You're breaking the traditions of the elders. You're not eating, you're not washing your hands before you eat. But then, right over here, there's this gaping, hypocritical, massive transgression of the fifth commandment that's going on. And they don't even seem to see this uh, contradiction between their zeal for their tradition and their breaking of the law of God. So that's the first charge that Jesus brings against them, is the charge of hypocrisy. But there's a second spiritual problem that they have, and it goes hand in glove with the first one, and that is that they are externalists. And we see that in verses 10 through 20. Jesus calls the people to him, and he says, Hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. And then skipping down to verse 15, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You see, connecting it back to the hypocrisy charge, right? They're so focused on this external thing of following this tradition of washing your hands before you eat that meanwhile their hearts are allowed to engage in basically the sin of covetousness, right? Because they don't want to take care of their parents. And so they found a way to allow the covetousness of their hearts to continue on unchecked all because they're focusing the, on the external. Not only do they elevate their man-made traditions over the Word of God, 
All they care about is external holiness, external ritual purity, leaving the heart untouched. They completely overlook the necessity of a changed heart. And of course, it makes sense, right? Because it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to think that sin is something caused by external factors, by just um, as long as you avoid certain things, as long as you don't drink any alcohol, as long as you don't watch any TV, as long as you dress modestly, as long as you do these outward things and everything's going to be okay and I don't need to worry about my heart. But Jesus says, no, sin comes from the heart. And so sin is a much deeper problem than just simply avoiding these outward things. It's not so easily overcome. The power of sin is so great. It has such a grip upon our hearts that you can't deal with it just by checking off a list and saying, okay, I won't do this and I won't do that. Thinking of sin too lightly as something that comes from the outside and defiles you is what leads to Phariseeism. Phariseeism says, if you just keep these commandments, wash your hands before you eat, uh, don't watch any TV, uh, make sure that you, uh, uh, you know, dress a certain way, don't ever touch a drop of alcohol. If you just do these things, then you will be pure and acceptable to God. Everything's going to be fine. And then you can go your way and say, okay, I did it. I'm good. But Jesus says that having done all that, having done everything the legalists command, even the stuff beyond the word of God, even going to the, the nth degree of holiness according to the Pharisees, if you do all that stuff, you will still be defiled in your own sinful heart. You could keep every law and every code to the letter. You could abstain from everything on the list that supposedly defiles you and yet still be impure in the sight of God because defilement and impurity comes from within. It comes from your own sinful heart. It comes from your own sinful thoughts and your own sinful desires. Isn't that amazing that it's possible, and Jesus taught this, right, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's possible to avoid actually committing adultery with your body and yet still be committing adultery in your heart. It's possible to avoid committing idolatry with your body and yet still have idols in your heart. It's possible to avoid committing murder with your hands and yet still have murderous thoughts and hatred in your heart. And yet the good news is that this is why Jesus came. And you've got to understand when you read the Gospels, and this applies right here in, in Matthew 15, when you read the Gospels, these stories and these teachings of Jesus, they're in the context of the entire Gospel. And what is the Gospel all about? The Gospel is all about how Jesus came to be the Savior of sinners, how Jesus came in order to deal with that problem. He came to deal with our sinful hearts. He didn't come simply to correct the Pharisees and say, okay, your interpretation of the Mosaic law is off. This tradition here is not correct. Instead, it's this tradition or this interpretation. He didn't come to give us better rules to make us more moral. He didn't come to give us a better list of things. So instead of avoiding unwashed hands, you should avoid this thing over here. No, he came himself to be the Savior. He came himself to save us from our sins. Remember at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, in the infancy narrative, the angel came and said, His name will be called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. And then you go to the end of the Gospels and He's the one that goes to the cross. 
He goes to the cross in order to bear our sins. He goes to the cross in order to take all of that defilement and impurity upon himself and to be judged for it upon the cross and to take it away. He came to die. He came to be the Savior, to be the sin-bearer. He came to set us free from the shackles of sin that binds our hearts. He came to give us new hearts, to take away the heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. He came to give us the Holy Spirit so that we would be regenerated, so that we would love him, so that we would desire to obey God, so that our hearts would be transformed, not simply becoming better legalists and better Pharisees, that we would become the people of God who love him and serve him from the heart. That's why Jesus performed the miracles and the healings and the casting out of demons. He did that in order to show us the nature of his office as the Messiah. He came as the Messiah to save his people, to deliver them from the power of sin and the power of Satan, to set sinners free. And so the healings are an outward sign of an inward grace. And that's why we then can turn to the story of the Canaanite woman and see her example of faith, which is just the opposite of the Pharisees. We see Jesus, the Messiah, coming to save his people. But this one is a little bit different because this woman is a Gentile. She's not part of the people of God. And so she doesn't have a right to receive the blessings that the Messiah is coming to give. The text tells us in verse 21 that Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. I was looking at a map, and that's pretty far. Let's assume, I'm not sure, but let's assume that Jesus was probably in Galilee at this time because, remember back in verse 1, the Pharisees came from Jerusalem, so they must have traveled north to Galilee where Jesus was teaching and preaching the gospel and healing the sick. Let's assume he's in the northern part of Israel in Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. From there to Tyre, which is the southernmost city on the east coast of, uh, on the west coast of Syria, it's about 40 miles, maybe even a little bit more. And so on foot, that journey would have taken at least two days for Jesus and his disciples. Tyre and Sidon are Phoenician cities on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and it, they're outside the land. They're outside of the holy, the holy place where God had given his people the inheritance to dwell in. Apparently, Jesus was trying to get away from all of the controversies, trying to get away from these conflicts with the Pharisees. It even says that he withdrew in verse 21. So you get this sense that he's withdrawing and, and going away to pray and to be with his disciples. So he wasn't really focusing upon doing miracles. He wasn't really focusing on his ministry of seeking the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But while he's there, Matthew tells us that a non-Israelite woman approached him with a request to heal her daughter who was cruelly oppressed by a demon. Now in terms of her nation, she was a Syrian. In terms of her race, she was a Phoenician. But it's clear that she was a Gentile, not a member of God's people. But what's really interesting to me is that Matthew calls her a Canaanite. That's a pretty charged term, isn't it? That has a lot of religious connotations to it because it calls to mind the Canaanites who used to live in the land, the land of Canaan, that's why they're called Canaanites, the land that God gave to the people of Israel and whom the Israelites were commanded to exterminate as they were going into the land under Joshua. 
God had told the Israelites, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. So here's this woman who's a Canaanite. She has no right to the blessings of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing to his people. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He's not the Messiah of the Gentiles, at least not yet. Of course, after he rises from the dead, the gospel will go to the Gentiles in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant where God promised that the Gentiles would be brought into the kingdom of God. But at this time, he's coming only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's coming to save his people from their sins. And yet here's this woman who's coming to Jesus requesting a miracle, requesting her daughter to be healed. Now, what does that tell you? I mean, think about that. 40 to 50 miles to the north of Israel, of the most northern part of Israel, outside the land in Syria. I can only imagine that somehow the news and the fame of Jesus, the miracle worker, must have traveled even to Tyre and Sidon. She must have heard, even way up there in Syria, she must have heard that there is this man who is a prophet of God, and he's going around and healing the sick. And so she comes out to Jesus, begging him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. That's a pretty amazing statement, isn't it? She recognizes that he is the Messiah. She recognizes that he is the son of David. This is an incredible thing. You know, what it reminds me of is it reminds me of another Canaanite woman in the Old Testament. Do you remember Rahab? She was a Canaanite. She lived in the city of Jericho, which was the first city that was slated for destruction by Joshua and the armies as they were going into the land. And yet, she had heard the fame. She had heard that God, that Yahweh, had called his people out of bondage in Egypt with a mighty hand, bringing the judgments of God upon Pharaoh and his army. And so she had heard the stories about the Israelites. The, the news had spread. And so when the spies came to scope out the city of Jericho, she believed in the Lord. And she said, you know what? I want to identify myself, even though I'm a Canaanite, even though I'm a Gentile, I want to identify myself with the people of Yahweh. And she was saved. When the spies came back, when the army came back, she had the scarlet thread in the window and her family was delivered from the judgment because she identified with the people of God, even though she was a Canaanite. And so like Rahab, this Canaanite woman has heard of the mighty acts of Jesus and is seeking his power as the Messiah of Israel to heal her daughter. The next thing Jesus does is to test her. He rebuffs her three times. Notice in the text there are three opportunities and yet he rebuffs her three times. First, he rebuffs her by simply being silent and ignoring her. He did not answer her a word. In verse 23. After this, she kept crying out for help. She kept, you know, just begging for, for mercy. And so the disciples, they got irritated with her and they came to Jesus and they said, send her away. Now, presumably, what they were saying is, send her away by saying something to her that would satisfy her, like, go back home, your daughter has been healed, or something like that. And we can assume that that's what they meant because of Jesus' answer to them, which is the second rebuff. He says in verse 
24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm not going to send her away by telling her that her daughter's been healed because I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We'll get to the third rebuff in just a second, but let me just make a note here and say, this is only for this time, okay? Because when you get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28, after Jesus rises from the dead, what does he say? He tells the disciples, go into all the world, preach the Gospel. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So being sent only to the lost sheep of, house, of the house of Israel is only for this time in his ministry, but it's not as if he's saying that salvation is only for the Jews. Obviously, it's going to go out to the whole world, to all the nations, in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises that God made back in the very beginning. That in you and in your seed, referring to Jesus, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And what's interesting, though, is that even though he says that, and he's basically saying, no, I'm not going to heal her because I'm only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What does he do? He actually heals her in the end. <laughs> and so it's a little foretaste. It's a little sign that the gospel is going to go out to all the nations. But let's re return back to the text then, to the third rebuff. So after he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep, which is the second rebuff, what does she do? She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She knelt before him. She knelt before him in prostration. She knelt before him in worship, acknowledging that he is the divine son of God. And she just simply says, Lord, help me. And now Jesus rebuffs her a third time and says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow, Jesus just called her a dog. That's a pretty heavy thing. He just said, look, the Israelites, the Jews, they are the children. And you Canaanites who live up here in, in Syria and Tyre and Sidon, you're dogs. You're Canaanites. You're not the people of God. And you're asking for the bread, which is the gifts of salvation and the miracles being a sign of the gifts of salvation. You're asking for the bread, the bread of life, the bread of salvation, to be taken away from the children, from the Jews, and to be given to the dogs. It's not right to take the bread that belongs to the children of God and throw it to the dogs, those who are outsiders, those who are unclean, those who are impure, those who are not members of God's covenant. And what does the woman say in response in verse 27? She says, yes, Lord. She admits that he's, he's right. You're right. I am unclean. I am unworthy. I don't deserve these benefits. Yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And of course, by the masters there, it's referring to the children, right? So you're supposed to sort of have this picture in your head of the family table, right? You have the head of the household at the, at the head, and he's giving the bread to the children, like Jesus giving the bread to the Jews, to the people of Israel. But as the children are eating, what happens? Some of the crumbs that they're eating fall from the table and land on the floor, and the household pets come and eat up the crumbs, eat up the scraps. And so in this way, she is expressing her faith in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, acknowledging that Jesus alone has the bread of life, and acknowledging that he has indeed come in the fullness of time 
to bring that saving bread to his people. But she's also admitting that she doesn't have a right to that bread. She's admitting that she is unclean, that she is a dog and a Canaanite. But so great is her need, so desperate is she to get her daughter healed, that she willingly places herself in that lowly status if she may only get a crumb of the bread that falls from the table that belongs to God's covenant people. And no wonder Jesus responds and says, O woman, verse 28, great is your faith. Doesn't it remind you of that other healing of the centurion who had a sick uh, servant and uh, he, uh, in his great faith, said, Lord, you don't even have to come to my house. All I have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, great is your faith. Go in peace. Your servant has been healed. And then he says, again, this is another Gentile, right? Because the centurion was a Roman. And Jesus says, many will come from the east and the west and they will sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And so even though the gospel at this time, even though the saving benefits of salvation that the Messiah is bringing are for his covenant people, for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, yet there are these little signs, they're like little crumbs, if you will, that are scattered throughout the gospel narratives, anticipating the day when the gospel will go out to the Gentiles, and they too shall be brought in to the covenant fold, and they too shall sit at the table as full sons, as equals, as joint heirs with God's people. And I think this is a wonderful thing. I think that in a way you could say that God intentionally set it up this way. It's almost a little bit confusing, right? Like if the plan was all the way from the beginning back in Abraham's day for the gospel to go to the nations, why not just have it go to the nations from the beginning? But I think that there's a, a parable here. There's a reason that God set it up this way in his magnificent wisdom because the gospel goes to the people of God first, but they reject it by and large. I mean, aside from the disciples and maybe the 120 that were in the upper room after Jesus rose from the dead, there was a remnant. There was a remnant of godly Jews that accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But by and large, the nation as a whole rejected Jesus because of their self-righteousness, because of this spiritual problem that we saw in verses 1 through 20 of Phariseeism. Because they were so committed to their external behavior and they didn't see the heart issues. And they didn't see the sinfulness of their heart and their need for a Messiah. And so you see such a contrast here. You see this contrast between the Jews who mostly rejected the gospel and the Gentiles who gladly received it. The, the, the Pharisees view Jesus as a heretic. He's a false prophet who's leading people to break the law. And so they reject him because of their pride and their self-righteousness and their self-sufficiency and they think they have it all together. But this Canaanite woman who's just the opposite, she's unclean, she's a dog, she's an outsider, and yet she knows her need. She acknowledges her sinfulness. She knows her guilt. She comes to Jesus as her only hope, the Messiah of Israel, the son of David, the one who has the power to cast out that demon that is tormenting her daughter. The difference is based on the different starting points self-righteousness versus need. The person who is confident in their own righteousness and law-keeping won't be able to see Jesus for who he really is. His pride and his righteousness blinds him and gets in the way. He can't see Jesus as the savior of sinners because he can't see himself as a sinner. 
but the person who's convinced of their need, who's desperately longing for healing and spiritual bread, that's the person for whom Christ came. That's the person who, in their persistent plea for help, receives the bread from Jesus. The Pharisees are judging Jesus from their perch of moral superiority, but this woman, this Canaanite woman, is crying out to Jesus and bowing at his feet, prostrating herself before him, begging for mercy. And she is the one who, from her place of need, receives what she desires. I've called the sermon the problem of Phariseeism. And Phariseeism wasn't just a problem in the time of Jesus. It wasn't just a Jewish problem. It's a recurring spiritual problem through the ages. And we're not immune to it, even as professing Christians. And so we need to know <clears throat> what is the answer, what is, what is the solution. And there are two things. First, consider the depth of your spiritual need. It's much worse than what a Pharisee thinks it is. A Pharisee thinks that the spiritual problem is fairly easily fixed by simply putting the band-aid of the law upon their need. But the problem is so much worse. And if you're a Christian, you know this. Even though Christ has redeemed you and forgiven your sins, yet you know this. You know that truth, that sin is in your heart. You know that you struggle with sin. You know those evil thoughts, the murders, the adulteries, the sexual immoralities, the thefts, the false witnesses, the slanders that are in your heart and sometimes even come out into reality. We need new hearts. We can only get those hearts from Christ by the regenerating power of the Son of David. Don't fall into the trap of the Pharisees who think that they are okay because they're only focusing on external things. Rather, look in the mirror and realize that you are a sinner in a much deeper way. And even if you were able to find a way to somehow scrape off the outward defilement and put some band-aids on it and dress yourself up nicely for your Sunday best to look good to other people, yet recognize that your heart is full of sinful desires. And that ought to humble you. It really ought to humble you when you see yourself that way in the sight of God. But the second solution is not only to consider the depth of your spiritual need, not only to be humbled before God because of the sin that's inside of you and that sickness of your soul, the second thing is to fly to Christ like this woman. Come to Jesus in humble trust and faith. And this Canaanite woman is such a perfect example of what it means to have faith. What is faith? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, it's so much more than simply having the knowledge of who Jesus is. Yes, she knows the facts. She knows that he's the son of David. She knows he's the Messiah. But it's so much more than that. It's trust. It's, it's coming to Christ in that heartfelt reliance upon him and trust in him. And in uh, theology, we have a great word for this. It's called fiducia. Fiducia is this, like, it's kind of like the word fiduciary, you know, where you have these responsibilities. Well, fiducia is trust. People can, if you have fiduciary responsibilities, it's because people have to trust in you. So fiducia is trust. It's wholehearted reliance. It's, it's trusting in Christ in complete confidence that he is the only one, that he is greater than you. He is your powerful savior who has the power to deal with your sin. And you see this fiducia in this woman because she was rebuffed so many times by Jesus and yet she keeps coming back. She keeps coming back because she has no one else to turn to. 
She knows that Jesus is the only answer, her only hope. She's even, willing, she's even willing to put herself in the position of a dog eating table scraps because she knows that Jesus is the only Savior for sinners like her. So that's the second thing. Not only be humbled, but be like this woman. Don't seek out the law. Don't seek out the traditions of the elders as the means to satisfy your needs. Come to Jesus. Just like the disciples said, remember when Jesus was teaching some things that were hard to understand and were somewhat offensive, and a lot of the disciples left. And Jesus came, came to them and said, what about you? Are you going to leave too? And what did Peter and the disciples say? They said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You only have the bread of life. That is faith. That is what it means to trust in Christ. And he is such a wonderful Savior. He has a power that is unimaginable. The power of his righteousness to cover your sin. The power of his Holy Spirit to transform you from within. His power to make you pure and to make you his people. So that we who are Canaanites, who are Gentiles, who are outsiders, are now sitting at the table and receiving all the benefits of salvation by faith alone. Let us pray. Father, how we thank you that Jesus is the son of David who has come to give us the bread of life. How we thank you that he has come to save us from our sins, not only granting us forgiveness, but also purifying our sinful hearts and setting us free from the dominion of sin. Cause us not to be like the Pharisees who only look at the externals. Cause us to come in faith like the woman, acknowledging our sinfulness and casting ourselves at the feet of Christ. Plenteous grace with thee is found, grace to cover all our sin. Let the healing streams abound, make and keep us pure within. This we ask in Jesus' name.